Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm Jim McCarthy, and on this episode, we're going to talk pneumonia. It's a pretty common problem in pediatrics, so you need to know what it takes to make the diagnosis and how best to treat it. In 2011, the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society and the Infectious Diseases Society of America put out a guideline for community-acquired pneumonia in kids over three months old, which will be one of our major references for today. Pneumonia in the first four weeks of life is its own topic, which we'll touch on briefly, and even though the guideline only officially covers otherwise healthy kids, it's still a good starting point for everyone else. First, that brief discussion of neonatal pneumonia. Neonatal pneumonia is divided into early onset, which presents within the first three days after birth, and late onset, which is really any time after that. In either case, the clinical signs are pretty nonspecific, but if a baby is febrile with respiratory distress, you should think about a diagnosis of pneumonia. Early onset pneumonia is passed to the baby from the mother by two main routes, aspiration of infected amniotic fluid or vaginal flora, or transplacental transmission, prolonged rupture of membranes, amnionitis, preterm delivery, and maternal fever during labor all increase the risk of early onset pneumonia. Group B strep is the most common cause overall in developed countries, and HSV is the most common viral pathogen. Thankfully, HSV is still not very common overall because it has a depressingly high mortality rate. When you think you're dealing with early onset pneumonia, treatment is ampicillin and gentamicin, just like most other neonatal infections, with acyclovir added if you're worried about HSV. Late onset pneumonia is considered a nosocomial or hospital-acquired infection passed from contact with an infected person or infected equipment. The biggest risk factors for late onset pneumonia are the need for assisted ventilation, airway abnormalities, conditions that increase the risk of aspiration, and prolonged hospitalization. There's a wider range of potential pathogens, and because of that, the recommendations for empiric treatment aren't as clear-cut. Usually you base treatment on local prevalence, exposure history, and how sick the patient is at presentation. For bigger kids, we'll start with some background. Pneumonia is an inflammatory condition of the lungs that's associated with fevers and respiratory symptoms. What sets pneumonia apart from other respiratory illnesses is that pneumonia involves the lung parenchyma, the functional tissue, instead of just the airways. There are a few different patterns of lung involvement. Lobar pneumonia primarily affects a single lobe, bronchopneumonia hits the tissue that surrounds the airways, and diffuse interstitial pneumonia is patchy all over. Most of the time, the imaging findings won't change much about your treatment plan, with the exception of necrotizing pneumonia, which should make you worried about staph infections, and granuloma formation that could be caused by TB. On the topic of pathogens, Streptococcus pneumoniae is the most common bacterial cause, but viruses are responsible for a huge number of cases and are the number one cause of pneumonia in kids under 5 years old. Beyond that, there isn't a lot of high-quality data on the epidemiology. It's always hard to single out one particular virus as a cause, and trying to get sputum cultures from kids mostly gets you a lot of normal oral flora. The treatment recommendations, which we'll get to in a few minutes, take that uncertainty into account. You start by treating for the most common bugs, and then adjust from there if things aren't getting better. If you get nothing else from this episode, please remember that pneumonia is a clinical diagnosis. If the patient has fevers, respiratory distress, and evidence of an infectious process on history or physical exam, you might be able to call it a pneumonia. And the longer the symptoms are present, the more likely it is you'll be right. Some other clinical nuggets that can help you when you're seeing a patient or on your next test. Classic strep pneumonia often has an abrupt onset with focal lung findings, while viral pneumonia is more gradual with a preceding URI and more diffusely abnormal lung exam. 
Atypical pneumonia usually has myalgia, malaise, headaches, and, especially on tests, a rash along with the respiratory symptoms. For the clinical exam, you're looking for the usual signs of respiratory distress like tachypnea, retractions, and nasal flaring. The lung exam can be helpful if there are focal findings. Decreased breath sounds or crackles over one area of the lung is a sign of consolidation and is more common in a lobar pneumonia, and ronchi, which are coarse, low-pitched sounds, point more towards bronchopneumonia. But a lack of focal findings doesn't completely rule out a pneumonia. Viral and atypical pneumonias in particular have a tendency to cause more diffuse infection, which leads to a more diffusely abnormal lung exam. Remember, respiratory distress, fevers, and evidence of infection are the big things you're looking for to call a pneumonia. At some point, you or someone you're working with is going to suggest getting a chest x-ray to evaluate. It's a nice thought, but it isn't really necessary. Imaging changes can lag behind clinical findings for days or even weeks, meaning that your patient with pneumonia might have a normal x-ray early in his course and still have an abnormal one for quite a while after he's been completely treated. Those 2011 guidelines I mentioned earlier also aren't too eager to image. They specifically recommend against routine x-ray if a patient is well enough to treat on an outpatient basis. The guidelines do suggest an x-ray for patients with hypoxemia, respiratory distress, treatment failure on their first round of antibiotics, or anyone who's hospitalized, but that's less to confirm the diagnosis than it is to look for complications like infusions or empyema that would affect the treatment plan. Repeat x-rays for follow-up also aren't generally needed as long as the patient is clinically improving, although patients with collapsed lobes or recurrent pneumonia in the same lobe might benefit from additional imaging to look for anatomic abnormalities. What labs you should think about getting depends a lot on who and how sick your patient is. Blood cultures aren't recommended for outpatients as long as they're up-to-date on immunizations, but can be helpful if symptoms are progressing or if the patient requires hospitalization from the start. Studies have shown a higher rate of positive blood cultures in hospitalized kids, although they were all retrospective and the cultures were probably drawn from kids who were more acutely ill, which biases the numbers. Blood cultures still don't have the highest yield. The highest rate in a study cited by the guideline was 11% for a patient population who fit pretty strict diagnostic criteria for pneumonia, but it's always nice if you can identify a bacteria. As low yield as it is, blood culture might be your best chance to identify an organism, provided your patient doesn't end up needing a chest tube. There's a weak recommendation in the guideline to get a sputum culture if the patient can produce one, but even under the best circumstances there's a high rate of contamination with oral bacteria. Checking the urine for pneumococcal antigens also isn't recommended in kids. It's pretty well studied and worthwhile in adults, but kids seem to have a much higher false positive rate. Some data suggests that 15% or more of kids are colonized with strep pneumo somewhere, so they might have a positive urine antigen even when they're perfectly well. The guidelines do suggest testing for influenza and other respiratory viruses as an option before starting antibiotics but the PCRs out there are never going to cover all the strains, and with kids, there's always a chance you'll pick up viral shedding from a cold that's long gone. The 2011 guidelines also say that ESR, CRP, and procalcitonin shouldn't be the sole determinant used to distinguish between a bacterial and viral pneumonia. That's still definitely true for ESR and CRP. They're both nonspecific inflammatory markers, but there have been some changes in how we look at procalcitonin. It's been fairly well studied in adults as a marker for sepsis and bacterial pneumonia, and in the last few years there's some new data out there for kids, too. 
In 2011, Susana Esposito and her colleagues published a randomized controlled trial looking at procalcitonin as a guide for antibiotic therapy in 310 hospitalized kids between 1 month and 14 years old. They measured procalcitonin on presentation in every 2 days until discharge, then followed up the patients 14 and 28 days after discharge. The control group followed standard pneumonia protocols for the hospital, but kids in the intervention arm were only started on antibiotics if their procalcitonin was 0.25 nanograms per milliliter or higher, and stopped treatment once it dropped below that threshold. At the end of the trial, 15.5% of kids in the intervention group never got antibiotics because their procalcitonin never rose above the threshold for treatment, and of the kids who did get antibiotics, 87% were treated for 8 days or less. Can you guess what happened in the control group? Every single one was treated for at least 7 days, 83% for 10 days, and 13.5% got a full 2 weeks of antibiotics. Not surprisingly, the control group had a higher rate of possible or probable antibiotic-related side effects, 25% versus 4%. Most importantly, there was no significant difference in readmissions or complications between the two groups. More recently, in 2017, Chris Stockman and his group published a study of 532 children who had been hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia looking at procalcitonin in relation to what pathogen was identified. They found that kids with typical bacterial cause for their pneumonia, strep pneumo, haemophilus, or staph aureus, had a significantly higher procalcitonin than the kids who only had a viral pathogen or an atypical pathogen like mycoplasma identified. No patient with a procalcitonin less than 0.1 nanograms per milliliter had typical bacteria identified, and a procalcitonin of less than 0.25 had a negative predictive value of 96% and 85% sensitivity for identifying patients whose pneumonia was not caused by one of the typical bacteria. Those are just two studies, but there are quite a few more out there. If you're interested, there's a pretty good review article by Philip Bauman in the August 2017 edition of Frontiers in Pediatrics. Procalcitonin isn't perfect, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more about it in the next update of the pneumonia guidelines. After you diagnose your patient with pneumonia, the next step is to decide whether or not they need to be admitted. People taking care of adults have the benefit of some validated scoring tools, CURB-65 and the Pneumonia Severity Index in particular. Unfortunately, pediatricians don't have anything similar to work with. A group led by Derek Williams published a study in the October 2016 issue of Pediatrics where they developed three prognostic models that did a pretty good job of predicting severity and outcomes, but there's still no simple, validated system for pediatric patients. In 2014, the World Health Organization simplified their pneumonia classifications for kids between 2 months and 5 years old to break it down to just two categories. Pneumonia with rapid breathing or other signs of respiratory distress gets labeled as pneumonia, and can usually be treated as an outpatient, while kids with red flags like strider, inability to take fluids, or altered mental status are considered severe pneumonia and probably need to be admitted. Other patients who should probably spend some time in the hospital are babies under 6 months old with suspected bacterial pneumonia, anyone at risk for a high virulence organism like MRSA, and patients who might need more care than they can get at home. To treat pneumonia, you have to think about what bugs you're going after. Remember, for kids under 5, viruses are the number one cause of pneumonia, and they rank pretty highly as a cause across all ages. That means that treatment for preschool-age children is almost always supportive care. Staying in the outpatient world, for fully immunized kids, amoxicillin is the first line for a pneumonia that you're worried enough about a bacterial cause to treat. 
For elementary school age kids or adolescents who look like they might have an atypical pneumonia, you should think about azithromycin, but also test for mycoplasma if you can to confirm the diagnosis. For sicker patients who need to be admitted, the guidelines recommend ampicillin or penicillin G for fully immunized patients as long as there isn't a high local prevalence of penicillin resistance in strep pneumo. If there is a lot of resistance around, or if the patient isn't fully immunized or has complications, use ceftriaxone or cefotaxine. Finally, if you're worried about staph pneumonia, adding vancomycin or clindamycin to ampicillin or acephalosporin is the way to go. For my practice, I usually lean toward clindamycin because there's no good oral alternative to vancomycin, but that's just my preference. Once your patient is improving and can tolerate oral antibiotics, you think about switching away from IV therapy. Sometimes that can be as quickly as one to three days into your treatment course. It might seem fast, but if you have a good oral option, amoxicillin or whatever the oral equivalent of the regimen your patient improved on happens to be, and your patient can tolerate it, there's no reason not to do it. After you make the switch to oral antibiotics, there's not a lot of data to suggest you should watch your patients for continued improvement, provided there's good follow-up in place and they're otherwise ready for discharge. Whether you start treatment as an inpatient or outpatient, a 10-day total treatment course has been the most well-studied, but most docs won't argue much with anywhere from 7 to 14 days depending on the clinical picture. The last thing I want to touch on is pneumonia with effusion or empyema. I mentioned earlier that hospitalized patients and patients with more severe disease should have a chest x-ray. This is why. You can identify an effusion on x-ray by looking for blunted costophrenic angles, fluid in the fissure, or any area outside of the lung tissue that looks more opacified than it should be. If you're not convinced about an effusion, you can follow up with a CT or ultrasound, but once you know the fluid is there, you have to decide what to do about it. Specific guidelines vary from hospital to hospital, but in general, an effusion that's less than 10 millimeters on a lateral decubitus film or takes up less than a quarter of the hemithorax doesn't need to be drained. If it's greater than 10 millimeters or covers less than half the lung, it should be drained if there are signs of respiratory compromise. Any effusions that take up more than half the lung space almost always need to be drained. Patients with chest tubes in place are one of the few groups that might need regular follow-up imaging. Most hospitals have some kind of protocol in place just to monitor to make sure the effusion is in fact getting better. If things don't look better on chest x-ray, you might need to use TPA to try to break up loculations, or even go in with a CT or ultrasound to see what kind of problems there might be with the drain. Aside from helping our patients, one of the best reasons to drain fluid is so we can study it. Gram stains, cultures, PCR studies, and fluid cell counts can all pay off by letting you identify a bug you might not have found otherwise, and helping you narrow down your treatment. After the initial fluid drainage, a chest tube usually stays in place until there's not much left to be drained. The exact threshold varies from institution to institution, but just about all of them have some kind of policy in place. That should do it for pneumonia. For take-home points, remember that pneumonia is a clinical diagnosis with fevers and respiratory distress as the major symptoms. Labs and imaging are all supplemental, not required, and what you should order depends on how sick your patient is. For kids under 5, it's usually a virus, but if you need to treat, amoxicillin or ampicillin should be your first line. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you have any feedback on what we're doing right, what we can do better, or something you'd like to hear about on a future episode, you can email me directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.